Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. Uh, I've interviewed over 2,000 researchers, clinicians, scientists, and geniuses, frankly, in their fields. Uh, Today will be no exception. I have William J. Sullivan, PhD. New book called Please to Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are, National Geographic Books. Uh, he's a professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. He studies uh, genetics and infectious disease. He got a lot of awards. Uh, he's been featured on CNN, Fox and Friends, The Doctors, National Geographic, Discover, Scientific American, Cosmos, and many, many places. So, Bill, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, tell me about the new book. Why? Uh, what motivated you to write it? It stemmed primarily out of the research that we do in my laboratory here at the IU School of Medicine. So in my lab, just real briefly, we study an intriguing parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, which is present in the brains of about one third of the human population. Doesn't make people sick unless they're immune compromised, but it has been linked to causing behavioral issues, not only in humans, but more convincingly in the other animals that it infects, particularly mouse models. So this opened up this can of worms for me, no pun intended, (laughs) that um, there could be microbes or other factors inherent in our biology that we don't know about or that fly under our radar screen that really affect the type of personality we have and the behavior that we exhibit. Yeah, well, I've started in on your book. I'm listening to it on Audible because I like to listen, you know. Um, And I I noticed that you have this intense curiosity about the diversity of all things, diversity of behavior and form and shape and, and activity, um, that probably is an underpinning of who you are, I guess, in, in your whole career, but maybe say more about that. Yeah, you hit on, you hit on one of the major theses of the book in that the, the main thing I want people to take away from all of this is that human personality and behavior is extraordinarily complicated. And it's not surprising when you look around and see all the differences uh, that humans have in terms of, um, you know, what they like to do, what they like to eat, um, whether they get depressed or not, whether they c- become addicted to drugs, and even things like how they vote or who they're attracted to. What accounts for this staggering degree of diversity and versatility in our behavior? And in the book, there's four major themes that I touch upon that operate as what I call curious or hidden forces in our biology. And I'd be happy to explain each one of those four themes, if you like. Yeah, no, that's good. Let me know, please. So the first one is one that we're all familiar with, and this is our DNA, our genetics. But most people think that DNA is rather limited to controlling physical traits like eye color or hair color, things like that. But what the research from this book has shown is that our genes actually have far-reaching effects into our personality and behavior, things that you probably never would have imagined. Quick examples, 
there are genetic studies that have linked various mutations in certain genes that can make people prone to alcohol and drug addiction. They can even affect the way someone might vote when they go into the voting booth. The second theme that I wanted to uh, express in this research was epigenetics. This is a really critically important field. This is a cutting edge field that isn't about changes in the DNA sequence, but it's about how DNA can be chemically modified, particularly by factors in someone's environment. So this can explain why we change over time, because even though we are born with a given set of genes, how those genes are expressed is partly controlled by the environment. So that's what epigenetics is all about. And the third factor is our microbes. I touched upon this at the introduction. Toxoplasma is just one of trillions of microbes that live inside our bodies and on our bodies. And the one that is getting the most attention are the intestinal bacteria that reside in our gut that seem to have very profound effects on our behavior. And then final hidden force that I touch upon is psychological. You know, we have these brains that are just marvelous, um, just um, the, these beautiful um, products of, of evolution. And many people like to think that their brain can trump a lot of these biological factors that we discuss in the book. And uh, I'm not going to say that's untrue, but our brain has a lot of evolutionary quirks, a lot of evolutionary ghosts that we're simply not aware of. They operate in our subconscious. And the book tries to bring those to light and tries to help people to make better decisions once you're aware of these things. So you put all of that together and you have this really eye-opening and rather unsettling um, revelation that there's a lot more to our personality and behavior that happens outside of our control than we initially like to believe. I get, I get the sense that you know your book is a tool that you know, obviously has a lot of uses, but I can hear the cries of some people saying, oh, it's not my fault, and it's because of this, that, or the other. And then other people saying, well, uh, you know, it's all because of nature, and other people saying it's because of this and that. It, it doesn't settle the debate on, for instance, nature versus nurture. It uh, expands it, makes it more complicated. But uh, any, any thoughts there? Did you have reactions to the book along any of those veins? Yes, I certainly do. Uh, there's a particular chapter that seems to cause the most trouble, and that's the one called Meet Your Demons. This chapter explores the dark side of human behavior and gets into why some people are more aggressive than others, why some resort to violence or even murder. And um, you may be aware that um, studies for decades have implicated various genes and genetic mutations in chem chemicals and receptors that control our brain and our brain activity. So th there's, there's a piece of um, genetic data there that speaks to a factor that's well beyond our control that may influence aggressiveness and violence. But what we found in emerging studies more recently is that the environment clearly plays a role in how these genes may be regulated. And this gets into that um, field of epigenetics that I spoke about earlier. Epigenetics, in my mind, is breaking down that barrier between nature and nurture and reminding us that this is a false dichotomy. Nature and nurture are really two sides of the same coin and we should, have, we should never really think about human behavior in those two separate realms because they are combined. 
our genes influence our environment and our environment influences our genes. And all of that put together has an effect on our personality and behavior. So you bring up a really good point in that when we discuss biological reasons why someone may commit murder, for example, whether we point to a gene or we point to CTE, the concussion disease, or if we point to a brain tumor, none of these are get out of jail free cards. None of these are trying to say that there's no responsibility whatsoever in that individual. What we're trying to communicate with these studies is that behavior is complex and we do have biological explanations for why we do the things we do, but it is a, an equation with many variables. So you can't just point to one thing like one gene and say, aha, this is why the person is violent. You have to consider it in the context of a person's environment. Yeah, I can see in uh, court cases of the future, you know, they'll do the facts, the evidence, a psychological workup and an epigenetic workup possibly too, to include that into the, uh, the evaluation process of the person's guilt or innocence. That is already happening, Richard. So back yeah. in 2009, there was um, a historical court case in the United States, a fellow named Bradley Woldrup. Um, he was um, on trial for murder of one of his wife's friends. And then he attacked his wife at the same time, but she got away. She made an escape. And he kind of made an escape too, because in the court of law, his lawyers successfully argued that he should be spared the death penalty because he has a gene that is mutated in a way that affects his brain chemistry. And there is science to back this up. So um, in his particular case, there's a gene, the so-called lawyer gene. Um, it's uh, MAOA, it stands for monoamine oxidase. But what, it, what you need to really know here is that it controls the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain. And when they accumulate and when they get out of balance, it causes people to lose control, okay? It causes a loss of impulse behavior. So you tend to act more without thinking about it. So um, his lawyer successfully got him spared the death penalty uh, because he contains this genetic mutation. Subsequent studies do show that it is enriched in prison populations and people who are prone to violence. So there does seem to be some meat to this hypothesis. And um, where the epigenetics comes into play is that there are people who have this so-called warrior gene mutation, and they're not violent, or at least not violent yet. So what's going on there? Uh, that's a really good question. And it's one of the red lights that pop up saying we can't utilize this as some kind of biomarker for violence because it's not predictive 100% of the time. What researchers have found is that there's a strong environmental component so that people who contain this mutation and are also subject to adverse childhood experiences, what psychologists call ACEs, this would be bullying, neglect, child abuse, and so on. When you couple this genetic mutation with that, with that harsh environment, then the odds of that person growing up to be violent go through the roof. So it dramatically changes how that genetic program is going to unfold. I guess all the, uh, the great movies that had it right, Minority Report and The Matrix and things like that, they all talk about these, uh, these deep what? issues and hint at what you figured yeah. out. It's a really neat philosophical discussion to have. Will we ever get to a place one day where we will know enough about our genetic makeup and how the environment controls those genes 
will we then be in a position to identify potential criminal behavior before it happens? It's too early in research to say whether that's true or not. There's, there's certainly a lot of scientists who think this is going to be far too complicated for us to predict criminal behavior with 100% certainty. And given how complex uh, our genome is and how little we know, um, that does seem to be um, a realistic concern. And then you still have other issues where people might not have any biomarkers for violence, but can still turn to aggression and violence based on um, behavior changes that occur because of brain injury or brain infection. The parasite that I told you about earlier, toxoplasma, has been linked to a loss of impulse control in people who are infected with it. So that's a little alarming that this very common parasite could be interfering with the behavior of, of people and uh, they don't even know about it. So given that what you've discovered about uh, epigenetics, I mean, I, I'm sure you know, like you mentioned about the microbiome and the fact that we're holobionts or meta-organisms. And <laughs> have you gone beyond mentally uh, neo-Darwinist thought? Do you still think that genes are the rulers of all? Or, you know, again, in my talks with people, it seems like, again, it's more complicated than we thought. And with epigenetics and with, again, the fact that we have microbes in every part of us, you know, what about things like a a gut feeling? What about possibly the fact that maybe our microbes are acting as a, an adjunct to our own minds and that they control our thoughts in part and, you know, they, they have an influence on us, yet they're somewhat not us. Yes, it really does kind of, really um, strike to the heart of the matter as to what exactly are we, you know, what is the self that we refer to? And microbes can definitely uh, affect the fundamental behavior, especially in model organisms. The studies in humans have a long way to go, but in mouse models, uh, things certainly look like they have a profound effect on how we behave. So I'll give you two really quick examples that underscore this point, but I want to preface it by highlighting, you know, the the point you just made. Since microbes also can affect us, as well as the environment, as well as our genetics, the behavioral equation does have many variables. So that's why, you know, when when you get into asking, uh, you know, if, if we are genetically predetermined, I think we have to address that question with a great deal of caution. We are stuck with the genes that we're born with, uh, at least at the moment. You know, genetic engineering is making great strides, but we are stuck with those cards. You know, those are the ones we're dealt. Um, We can't change that, but we can change how they're expressed. You know, we can change our environment and possibly our microbes, which can make genes not necessarily our destiny. So let me give you those two examples um, about the microbes. Okay. So there's this great tool that was devised a number of years ago called germ-free mice. This was developed by Jeffrey Gordon at uh, Washington University. And these are mice that are born through sterile C-section. They don't have any microbes on them or inside of them. So this gives scientists this great tool to transfer whatever microbes they want into these germ-free mice and then see what happens. So if you take identical twins who are discordant for obesity. In other words, one of those twins is lean and the other twin is obese. If you take intestinal bacteria from the lean twin and put it into this germ-free mouse, the mouse stays lean and healthy. 
if you take the intestinal bacteria from the obese twin and put it into that germ-free mouse, that mouse begins to overeat, it becomes obese, and is predisposed to diabetes. So these are genetically identical mice, and the intestinal bacteria came from genetically identical people. So the only variable here seems to be the microbes that were put into the germ-free mouse. And it tells us that these microbes are making substances. They're generating metabolites that can influence our cravings and our appetite and make some people um, more prone to obesity. So this would seem to override um, a lot of like, you know, genetic predisposition and so on, if indeed microbes have that much of a say in our appetite control. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they are part of our decision-making process. I mean, they have votes and they're, you know, helping us consume the foods we eat and, you know, producing all kinds of uh, molecules that, that go into our cells and our cells feed them. And there's this interaction there. So I guess it makes sense that they have at least <clears throat> somewhat of a say, maybe they're not, they're not the controlling vote. We still at least like to think of ourselves as, as one creature that runs everything. But uh, I think they have a much bigger role than anyone thinks. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I'll give you that second example because it plays right into the point that you just mentioned. So there are mouse models of depression. Uh, many people aren't aware of this, but you can have happy and sad mice. So if you generate these germ-free mice and you have one that um, is depressed and you give it intestinal bacteria from a non-depressed person, uh, that mouse starts to get better. It starts to cheer up. It starts to have fewer symptoms of depression. And the opposite works too. If you give a germ-free mouse that is not suffering from depression, intestinal bacteria from a depressed individual, okay, that formerly happy mouse starts to exhibit signs of depression. So this is a really profound discovery that could reshape how we approach mood disorders like depression. And consistent with that data, scientists have found that these intestinal bacteria that reside in our gut do indeed make about 90% of our serotonin. So serotonin is one of the key neurotransmitters that regulate mood in our brains. So you're absolutely right. These bacteria that are in our gut somehow get chemical messengers up to our brain and can influence how we feel. Well, I've, you know, I take uh, thyroid hormones. So I've heard that uh, thyroid hormone is converted, quote unquote, in the gut and serotonin is produced in the gut and B vitamins are produced in the gut. Um, I don't know exactly where or by whom, but I've heard this many, many times. So it seems like uh, our microbial attachments, uh, our constituents produce a lot of the things that we need to live. They absolutely do. And I'll give you one really startling, um, but, but rather rare situation. The, these, you, you got to remember that in our gut, there are trillions of bacteria. These, these guys are tiny on an individual level, but you put them all together, that comes out to about three pounds of biomass. So you got three pounds of bacteria in your gut that weighs more than the human brain. So we can't underestimate what sort of effect they're having on us. So in very rare cases, some people get intestinal microbes in their gut that are really good at breaking down carbohydrates into alcohol. So there's this bizarre condition that I talk about in the book. Auto brewer syndrome. Yeah, I just yeah, read about this. You remember this. This is a really freaky thing where people can get drunk without drinking any alcohol whatsoever, 
because the bacteria in their gut are converting a bagel into booze. It, it, it's crazy. But there are um, several well-documented cases where this is unequivocally happening. So those are the extreme examples, but you might imagine a scenario where people have a smaller amount of this type of bacteria in their gut, and um, maybe they're just happier all the time, you know, because they have this little buzz going on because of the bacteria that are <laughs> making a little alcohol in their gut from time to time. You know, the, 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 um, the implications are, are just, you know, beyond the imagination here. Um, I have one question about the mice. I don't know if you know, but... Um... The germ-free mice, were they given specific bacteria and then the effects were observed or were any of them given, uh, you know, was a germ-free mouse ever given a fecal transplant from another mouse? So they get a whole bunch of bacteria, virus, yeast, fungi all in one go. They get a complete like microbiome all in one shot. I've seen it both ways. In the very beginning, a lot of the studies just transferred the entire microbiome because we didn't know what component of it was actually producing the effect. But now the studies are becoming more refined and scientists are trying to track down which individual species of bacteria might be inducing this effect. And you bring up another important component. There's other things in our gut besides bacteria. Uh, to a lesser degree, there could be fungal cells. And there's these substances called phages that you mentioned. These are viruses that infect bacteria. They don't infect people, but they infect bacteria, which in turn could affect our microbiome. So it's a really complicated picture uh, that's going to take a long time to sort out, but at least we have really good tools that are emerging that are going to allow us to get there. Were there any, uh, this is my last question about it, we'll move on. I don't mean to get mired down, but did you, in the literature, did you read if there was a different effect for germ-free mice that got an entire fecal transplant versus ones that had specific microbes put into them? Were the effects very different? I remember researching one of these, and it's explained in the book um, where I think it might have been a study that related to the germ-free mice and the appetite. So they, they scientists put in like one species and it didn't have any effect, whereas they put in another, I think it was a species of bacteria that was really good at like breaking down fiber. They put that one into the gut and they saw some health benefits. So there does seem to be um, some discriminating we need to uh, apply to the microbiome because just getting bacteria in general um, may not produce the desired effect. What we want to go forward, the way, to, the way forward is to try to identify the species or maybe even the metabolites they're producing and put that in a more refined therapy, whether that be in pill form or in something like a probiotic um, we may be able to get to the point where we don't even need to worry about the bacteria because we know now what chemicals they make, and then we can just give the patient those chemicals. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, re, you know, sorry to take you astray from the book, but returning to it, um, what, what's not in the book that, you know, you can't include everything, but uh, any, any bonus material for people listening, you know, we want them to read the book, of course. It's really cool so far. You're just your, your curiosity alone makes it a, a fun read or a fun listen. But what, uh, what didn't make it in that you wish would have made it in maybe that you want to cover? I tried to be as thorough, thorough as possible because I really think people need to become aware of these concepts. And, uh, you know, with, with uh, the limited amount of time that we have, we certainly can't get to all of them. But there's lots of facets of behavior 
that um, go a little unexplored. So what I do on my website, which is authorbillsullivan.com, I've been writing a number of follow-up articles that do a deeper dive into some of the science um, behind um, uh, the various aspects of behavior that I do discuss in the book. So people can read in my other writing tab some of the articles I followed up on. One of the more recent ones got into lying, and this was inspired over the holidays when I saw the movie Knives Out. If you haven't seen that Oh, that was a great movie. Ah, you have seen it. Well, for listeners who haven't, you remember the main character, Marta. Anytime she told a lie, she would throw up. So she's like a modern-day Pinocchio, right? But instead of her nose growing, she pukes. Um, And, you know, it bothered me all through the rest of the movie. Does that really happen? Can that really be true? And um, this is why you don't want to go to the movies with me, Richard, because (laughs) I'll just latch on to something in biology and, you know, I'll want to Google it right there. So I got home and researched this further, and it turns out there is a genetic predisposition for people who compulsively lie. And this is something that I didn't um, investigate intensively for the book for the sake of space. But there is a genetic mutation that I believe is linked to serotonin once again, whereby people who don't make enough serotonin, they lose some of their impulse control and they perhaps say things without thinking through it more carefully. And that would create a scenario, you know, a plausible scenario why some people would lie. So I do a deeper dive into some of the genetics of lying, you know, by way of one example as a follow-up to the book. Okay, very interesting. So um, in terms of feedback from the book, we spoke about it a little bit, but, uh, you know, have you had people that read it all the way through and then gave you, um, I don't know, feedback that surprised you or, you know, did it have the effect that you intended so far, at least in maybe a small group that read it and, uh, you know, gave you a lot of specific feedback on it? I. I, I, I am absolutely thrilled by the response that the book is generating. Um, it seems that the vast majority of people uh, really did capture the message and they walk away from this book with a tremendously humble opinion, not only of themselves, but of other people as well. Because as you read this book, you begin to understand that there's a lot of unusual behavior exhibited by people that you might not understand that this book sheds some light on. So this book will inform you why some people struggle so much um, with appetite control or why some struggle with depression or drug addiction, uh, why some people just can't get along, whether it be through romance or whether it be through politics. This book tries to reveal the biological factors that control this, which is a very important component that shapes who we are and what we do. So the main message I want people to take away from the book is a little bit of empathy and understanding towards other individuals, especially ones who don't feel or believe the way that you do. And I've been seeing that. Um, One of the most touching experiences I had was at a book signing um, a month or so ago. And this young woman came up to me uh, to get her book signed. And she started um, saying that the book has changed her life. And, you know, when you first hear that as an author, yes, it's wonderful to hear, but it sounds like a little bit of an exaggeration, Uh, you know, a little bit of a, uh, like, you know, 
you're, you're a big fan and I appreciate that, but that sounds like it's a really profound observation. But then she started tearing up and she said that the book, especially the chapter on addiction, helped her reinitiate a relationship with her estranged sister who she hasn't talked to in two years because the family disowned her because of her alcoholism. And in reading my book, this woman realized the biological reasons for alcoholism and how it's really not fully um, in the control of someone who suffers from this. So without going into all the details, there's a lot of biological explanations for why people become addicted to drugs that most people who don't have that problem will never understand uh, because they simply don't experience them. But what amazed me, and I'm so glad that she shared this with me because it had a deep effect, is that this book allowed her to um, gain insight as to why her sister struggled with alcoholism and it helped them rebuild a damaged relationship that might not have been repaired had she not read this book. Yeah, that's really cool. Even that that one super positive result is, uh, I'm sure it's great satisfaction to you. That's really cool. Yeah, it's tremendous. It makes all the research and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into the book more than worth it. What about, you know, people read it, they'll get a better appreciation for where diversity and where behavior comes from. But what about a toolkit? Do you give ideas on that in the book? Or are people supposed to draw their own conclusions? Or does it give you ideas on your own of, hmm, Next book maybe is, uh, now what do I do about it if I want to change my behavior or you know, feebly attempt to change someone else's behavior? Right. So, so no, that, that's, yeah, why go through all of this information if we can't extract some kind of utility from it? So at the end of each chapter, I do provide, I try to provide some kind of summary or outlook as to, okay, now that we know this, um, rather than look upon it as like unsettling information, how can we utilize it? What can, how can we capitalize this and improve, um, you know, ourselves? So there's a lot of information in the taste and appetite chapter that, you know, I'll tell you personally, really made me reconsider my diet, okay? So once you appreciate how the microbiome plays into things and how your diet can adversely affect the microbes in your gut, and how that can avalanche into a number of different health problems, it, it really inspires you to um, eat better and exercise. <laughs> so I'm hoping that um, I gave some practical advice in that regard that some people can find inspirational. In the chapter on addiction, like I just illustrated with that woman who came up to me after the book signing, I hope that people gain insight into why some people struggle with addiction or depression that can help them rebuild relationships support and encourage one another because that's what's going to start a healing process rather than ignoring the problem dismissing it or misunderstanding it the last chapter of the book also gets into more high-tech issues of how we might be able to fix behavioral problems that stem from genetic defects utilizing gene editing tools like crispr cas9 um, which i think most people understand today that's just an exquisitely powerful and specific gene editing tool so that some of the genetic mutations that are discussed in the book could potentially be repaired. There's also epigenetic drugs on the horizon, and we talked about probiotics, ways to remodel the microbiome to be more favorable to health outcomes. And then we get into like cybernetic implants, which is the chapter on the brain 
where we can maybe augment our intelligence or our memory um, utilizing machines. So I didn't want to leave people hanging. Uh, so the whole last chapter is basically about your future. But I do like your idea to maybe build a whole nother book around how we can utilize this information for good. Well, actually, you know, I know it's funny to bring up in an interview, but I'm imagining your book is like a, you know, chicken soup for the soul. They have chicken soup for every kind of soul there is. But like, for instance, you know, for people with addiction and for their counselors, if you have your book, but maybe the, you know, one of the main chapters or is expanded is, is addiction and the biological and other bases for it, influencers of it, it could be, you know, nice to meet me or pleased to meet me, you know, the, you know, for addicts or pleased to meet me for people struggling with weight or the book seems like it could be tailored, you know, just a bit uh, for all these particular things that people struggle with. And then it would make it, it would be more directed towards them, more targeted to them. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, there's a little something for everybody in this book that that's absolutely true. And you can certainly, uh, I think, read it piecemeal. So I think, you know, if, if people were just interested learning more about addiction, they could just focus on that chapter, for example. But in the process of writing this book, you know, it started as just your, you know, a popular science book that was just kind of fun and entertaining to read because it's very fascinating stuff. The content just kind of writes itself. But I did want to make it a little bit of a self-help book too, because there's a lot of useful information here in how people can view their lives and relationships through a more evidence-based window. And that is what's going to help us improve our lives and our society. Because if we don't understand the biological basis for why we do the things we do, we're kind of powerless to do something about problems that might arise. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to, uh, you know, to get your book? I know that I have the Audible edition, so it's there, and Amazon and Kindle is my guess, and I guess everywhere, right, where you want to get books? It's a National Geographic's book, so it's available at all major booksellers, um, certainly available online, but probably at your local bookstore as well. There's links to it on my author website at authorbillsullivan.com if people are having trouble. And if they want to follow along with um, the additional material that I'm writing, uh, I encourage them to go to the author website and hook up to my social media channels. They can follow along there. Well, very good. Well, Bill, thanks for your curiosity and for this uh, really great book. I'm, I'm getting into it. I'm not through it, but uh, you know, I'm on the journey. So uh, thank you for doing what you do. And I'm glad you came. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for your thoughtful question. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be smarter than everybody else, become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 